We're going to be taking just a brief break from the Gospel of Mark series that we've been in, and I'm going to invite you to turn to the Old Testament book of Nehemiah with me this morning. If you're not sure where that is, just start with Psalms and back up three books, and you'll run right into Nehemiah. Now, the main encouragement that I want to make clear and give you today is this. Hard times are often the best times for God to cultivate joy in his people. Let me say that again. Hard times are often the best times for God to cultivate joy in his people. One of the reasons for that is it's in our difficult circumstances and in our hardships is where we can see God at work, both in us and through us, most clearly. Now, you may not know the name Lieutenant Gail Halverson. Not many people do. But shortly after World War II, thousands of kids in Berlin knew this guy. Not by his given name. They knew him as the Candy Bomber. Now, you can imagine, right after World War II was over, Europe was in shambles. And Germany, because they lost the war, different countries were dividing up that country. And so the Soviet Union began to take West Berlin and cut it off from the rest of the world. And so that's why the Berlin Wall was constructed, to keep out the evil influence of the West, but to also keep the citizens imprisoned. And because of that, food went scarce and and different allies began to try to feed the people locked into West Berlin. And as is usually the case, the kids were the ones suffering the most. One day, Lieutenant Halverson, who was stationed nearby, approached a barbed wire fence where there's a group of about 30 kids gathered. And all he had in his pocket was two sticks of gum. And through the barbed wire fence, he handed them to 30 kids here, And instead of, like the older kids, snatching them and keeping them for themselves, he watched them slowly, with smiles on their face, take these two little sticks of gum and pick off small enough pieces that every one of the kids could have a little bit. And then they took the wrappers, and they took turns smelling the wrappers, savoring these two little sticks of gum. Well, this this so moved Lieutenant Halverson with their selflessness and and their gentleness with one another that that he told them, I'm going to be back, and I'm going to be bringing more. And so he took his own rations and even convinced a few buddies that they were going to trade in their rations, as many as they could, so that they could get candy and chocolate and gum for these kids. Now, Lieutenant Halverson told the kids, he's like, now look, next time you see me, I'm going to be in a plane. Now, normally when they see the planes flying overhead, the kids kind of scatter. So he said, here's how you'll know it'll be me. I'll wave my wings at you, and you'll know it's me, and I'm going to be bringing candy your way. So as he convinced his buddies to help him, and they gathered up all this candy, they thought, well, we don't want to just drop candy on top of kids. That's probably not a good idea. And so they, they created these little parachutes out of handkerchiefs. So each time the candy bomber made his run, more and more kids showed up. Word got out. Well, the dangerous part of this is word got out to Lieutenant Halverson's superiors. 
And so he could be court-martialed because he was doing this without anybody's permission. Instead of being punished, the U.S. military saw this as a great opportunity to spread some goodwill in the communist city of West Berlin. And so, with their help, in all, 250,000 parachutes with 20 tons of candy were dropped for the kids in Berlin, which of course brought them great joy in the midst of great pain. But it also brought them some hope because it reminded them that someone cared. It reminded them that someone saw their suffering. And it was also a helpful reminder that things would not always be as bad as they were in that moment. Isn't it true that God in our own lives, often uses the backdrop of great pain, of sometimes even what it feels like to be destruction in our lives. Isn't it often God uses that backdrop to remind us how faithful He is? In the midst of our own hopelessness is usually when we begin to really see the hope we have in Christ. Isn't it usually in our own weakness where we are compelled to lean on the strength that is only found in Christ. And then when we are grieving, that's when we truly know how important the comfort of the Spirit really is. And so that's why this morning I want us to, to hold to that truth and be encouraged that in our hard times, those are often the best times that God will cultivate joy in us. Now, as we get ready to look at the book of Nehemiah, just a quick background here. All through the Old Testament, God's calling His people and He's getting a place ready for them, a place God calls the promised land. And even after God miraculously gives them the promised land, we know all through Israel's history, they went through this painful cycle time and time again where they would forget God and worship idols instead. And God had great patience through the years, but there were times that the people of Israel would completely forget God. And so God, in his patience and also in his judgment, would lift his hand of protection from his people, which allowed the enemies of Israel to come in and overtake them and take them captive. Those were known as periods of exile for Israel, taken away from their homeland, from the promised land, and kept as slaves. And so what's leading up to our text here, the people of Israel are just now coming out of a time of slavery, just now coming out of exile after their disobedience to God and forgetting God. And when they come back to Jerusalem, what do they find? But the walls of Jerusalem completely destroyed. Now that wasn't just a visual and an aesthetic. That was the honor of the city. That was the protection of the city that they no longer had, so that the city was left vulnerable to more enemies and also was the shame and the scourge of all around. And so, Nehemiah heard about the walls, and it broke his heart. And he prayed to God, and he repented on behalf of Israel. And Nehemiah went to Jerusalem and saw it for himself, and rallied the people. And even though the walls were were devastated and crumbled for a hundred years. With God's supernatural help, they rebuilt the walls in 52 days. Well, the people knew this wasn't by their strength. And so they're giving God praise. They all gather together. And Ezra, the priest, he brings out what the people have forgotten for so long. He brings out the Word of God. 
and he reads aloud. And that's where we pick up in our text. Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 8 through 12, and then we'll pray. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribes, or and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people saying, Be quiet for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that your word is truly a gift. In your word, we see you, Lord. We hear your voice. We come to know who you are and we come to know who we are in you. But, Lord, we confess that we need your help this morning. As we unpack these beautiful verses, speak to us, O God, as you're faithful to do, that your people may truly rejoice and give you praise. In your name we pray. Amen. The Westminster Shorter Catechism asks questions and then gives answers. One of the questions it asks is, what is the chief end of man? In other words, what's man's highest purpose? And the answer given is this. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Now you often hear us quote our mission statement. We exist to glorify God by making disciples, through treasuring and living and proclaiming the gospel. And the core piece of that is we exist to glorify God. That is absolutely true. And we will continue to declare that and hold to that. But we don't need to forget the second part. We exist to enjoy God forever. That peace so often gets missed in the hard times of life. And the enjoyment that we are finding in God, if you've served the Lord for any length of time, you know as well as I do that that enjoyment finds its deepest meaning, its, its clearest recognition when it, we can't hold to anything else. When the other things we've or clinging to for our identity or our peace or our joy are suddenly not there or they're shaken. And we see God as that source so that uh, there's a a battle-tested joy that begins to develop in the heart of the Christian that is not as easily shaken by circumstances, but actually through our trials grows deeper, grows more joyful, grows more unshakable in faith in who God is, knowing He remains faithful. There are two aspects of this battle-tested joy I want us to consider from Nehemiah this morning. First is this. Battle-tested joy is cultivated by remembering God's faithfulness. It's cultivated by remembering God's faithfulness. 
As we've seen through their years of exile, little by little, Israel had forgotten God. They had forgotten God's word, which meant they forgot their history. They forgot covenant with God. They forgot God's faithfulness to Israel all through the years. And therefore, they forgot who they belonged to and who they were. But all of that was about to change. As we read in verse 8, that Ezra reads from the book, from the law of God. He reads clearly and then gives the sense. That's a fancy way of saying he taught them. So here we see a public reading of what we assume to be the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, reading these books publicly and pausing to teach and explain to the multitude. It says they read from the law clearly and gave the sense. So here we have the people standing before newly built walls, standing before the priest, reading the law of God that Many of them had not heard in so long, and most of them were hearing for the very first time this forgotten treasure of God's Word being proclaimed. From the morning to midday, they're hearing about creation, maybe for the first time. They're hearing about man's fall into sin, and maybe it's clicking in their minds. No wonder I've forgotten God. Sin indwells in me. They're hearing of God's covenant with Abraham, the law given to Moses, God's faithfulness to Israel, guiding them, protecting them, loving them, keeping covenant with them even when they were unfaithful. And as they're hearing these words, it's understandable why they begin to weep. But we need to remember, this is, I think, a sobering example and and a help to us today that we must never assume the gospel. We must never assume that the value of God's word just kind of trickles into our minds and into our families accidentally. No, no, it doesn't happen that way. As we see here with Israel, a generation of parents forgot God. Well, it stands to reason their kids would never know God. D.A. Carson famously said, One generation believes something, the next assumes it, and the third will forget and deny it. I think there's some aspects of that that has been going on since time began, but I think there's some of that being concentrated right now. There's an aspect of even churches, even professing Christians, letting go of essentials of the faith, neglecting God's Word, giving up aspects of the gospel we don't need to be giving up and it's not just personal choices or the the word being thrown around deconstructing the faith what's really happening is our kids are suffering from that if they don't hear it in the home if they're not seeing examples of it and if their church isn't teaching it so this is a helpful reminder for us and to be encouraged that maybe you're a product of a home that you didn't, you were not raised in Scripture, you were not raised in the Gospel, but God gloriously saved you. Praise the Lord. He's sovereign in salvation. But at the same time, let us take this as a helpful reminder. God wants to use us, parents. He wants to use friends. He wants to use neighbors, coworkers, to help point others to Jesus. May we do that faithfully. And when we fail, God is still faithful. 
And so when we see these kinds of reminders in Scripture of God's faithfulness, it creates, it creates joy in us. Now what is that? What does that mean to have joy in God? Well, it's certainly not blind optimism. It's not just grinning and bearing it. It's not being all smiles. Joy in God is not just an emotion or a feeling. As Christians, joy is a response to the truth. It's a response to who God is and what he has done. Now, our emotions are involved. That's not, that's not to be dismissed. But there are times that our emotions can be completely sad. But we can still have joy because we are responding to the truth. An example of that would be when a loved one dies, a loved one who knows Jesus. Well, there's obvious grief. There's obvious sadness. And that is appropriate. But we don't grieve without hope. We know if that person was a believer, we know they are with Jesus. We know we will see them again. So through tears, there is joy. Because that joy is a response to the truth of God's faithfulness. A response to the truth beyond what we can see and feel in the moment. That even through sorrow, we can have joy. Now, in the verses just before what we read in in, uh, Nehemiah here, in just the verses before this, we see that Israel begins to respond. Look at verse 5. Back up and look there with me. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, meaning on a platform. And as he opened it, all the people stood. So picture all the people standing up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Picture all of these people. Picture the multitude of people hearing God's word, many of them for the first time, and responding with amen, responding with raised hands, responding as they stood in reverence. When they say amen, that that says so be it. That's how we respond even today. When you hear truth preached, or singing, and we shout, Amen! That's a biblical response. That's a heart of joy responding to the truth. Even if that heart is burdened with grief, we can still respond in joy. So, there are these outward responses to this inward reality that they're responding to. They're not just listening to a sermon or to a reading. They're being moved by it. They are worshiping God through His Word. Now, back in verse 9 in our text today, look there. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. And then he says, For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Why did they weep? Because they were coming face to face with the holiness of God. They were coming face to face with reminders of God's faithfulness to his covenant and by contrast, the reminder of how unfaithful they had been. There's nothing that causes us to see the depth of our sin more than to recognize the vast holiness of God. And with that, the vast mercy and forgiveness God gives us in Christ. So the people, overwhelmed with grief, began to weep. 
when we recognize sin in our lives, that there is an appropriate grief, an appropriate brokenness. We don't bypass grief. But we also don't live there either. We see that grief. We repent. When we see our own failings and our own unfaithfulness to God, if that's all we see and if that's where we stay, that will lead to condemnation. That will lead to bitterness. And that's not what God intends for you. Because of Jesus, because of the good news of the gospel, we know that God is faithful even when we are not. Beautiful reminder of that in 2 Timothy 2. Paul says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Oh, I love that verse. God's faithfulness is not based in who we are, but is based in who he is. And he is faithful. Since he does not change, his faithfulness will not change. Even in those times where I'm most aware of how great my sin is, I can be reminded that His grace is greater. Even in those times where I look around this world and I see what's happening and and fear or anger begins to grip my heart, I can remember by the Lord's remembrance that He is the one who is sovereign. He is the one in control, even when it feels like I'm out of control. When I become angry or frustrated, I can look to Him and remember His grace is enough. That's why James can say, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or perseverance. This reminds us that in our trials, in our most difficult moments, we can see God's faithfulness most clearly. We are often reminded of God's love, of His patience with us, of His forgiveness toward us through Christ and when we remember those things, when we, we see God's faithfulness afresh, it's, it's like water to a parched soul. It's refreshment to a weary heart. When we recognize God is faithful, no matter what difficulty I'm facing in these moments, I can be reminded that I am His, that Jesus is mine, that He is with me, that He is keeping me, and He always will. In our hardest times, those things are just as true. Joy doesn't prevent pain. But joy reminds us there's purpose in our pain. Because we have a loving, sovereign, faithful Savior who is leading us. So, battle-tested joy is cultivated by remembering God's faithfulness. And second... Battle-tested joy is best celebrated in community. We see that the people wept in response to the reading and teaching of God's Word. We don't know how long that weeping went on, but eventually Ezra told people, stop it. Stop your weeping. Dry it up. Your parents ever tell you that for a spanking? <laughs> Dry it up. That doesn't feel very compassionate, does it? Stop your blubbering. Well, what's really going on? Look at verse 10. He says to them, Go your way. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our God or our Lord. 
and do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Notice a couple of things here. Notice that not only were the people told to stop weeping, but they were told to start celebrating. Go home, have a party, have a feast. I like that kind of command. Go have a party. And notice the other interesting thing is this command was not just for individuals or for this family or that family. It was for all the people. And it was for all the people to be mindful as they celebrate together. Notice that instruction that to send portions to anyone who has nothing. They were meant to be mindful of each other, to share with each other, to open up a place at their table, to think in a community way. After all, God was not just faithful to a few of them. He was faithful to all of them. They were all weeping together. Now it's time for all of them to celebrate together. And what was at the center The motive behind this celebration. Look at verse 10 again. Go your way, eat the fat, drink sweet wine, send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. Here it is. For this day is holy to our Lord. Now, if you've been paying attention, you've seen that phrase at least three different times in our text today. This day is holy to the Lord. The word holy means set apart. It means for God's use, for his worship, for his pleasure. In other words, Ezra is saying, Israel, this day is not ultimately about you. It's about God and his faithfulness. It's like when you were a little kid and you went to a friend's birthday party and that friend was opening up all their presents and you felt left out. You're wondering, where's my present? And your parent had to pull you aside and say, this isn't your birthday. It's not your party. It's not about you. That's kind of what Ezra's doing here in a loving way. Israel, stop weeping. It's not all about you today. We need to be rejoicing because God has been faithful. We have been unfaithful, but He remains faithful. God has kept covenant with you. Not only has He rescued you from exile, not only has He blessed us in amazing ways that these walls could be rebuilt, But God has not left you. He is with you and will always be with you. Rejoice. Many more reasons to celebrate than there was to grieve. And this morning as we we see this picture, I hope we can relate. I hope we can can say with, with sincerity that as a church, we have experienced amazing blessings of God through community through togetherness. Amazing blessings that God has given us through community. So many good things, good reasons why God calls us, His people, to come together and worship. And then when we're not gathered on the Lord's Day, that we are dispersed, but that we're still living out life together. So many good reasons for that. One of those reasons is that when we live out life together, That's when we can see God's faithfulness on display in one another. That's when we can hear the stories of how God met you, and that encourages my faith. And I can tell you where God met me, and that encourages your faith. That when we are hurting or suffering, we are never alone. We do it together. 
When my faith is weak, you can remind me of what's true, of what I'm forgetting, or what I'm believing that's not true. And you can remind me of the gospel. And together, we can worship God. So many blessings through the togetherness, through the celebration in community as God intends. Is it any wonder why the enemy fights us so hard not to gather? Is it any wonder why the enemy helps facilitate so many excuses or so many hindrances to put something else in front of the gathering on a Sunday, to put something else in front of any gathering of believers? Is it any wonder? Because the enemy knows what is already true, that when we gather, we are compelled to remember God's faithfulness And it lifts us above our own circumstances and reminds us who is sovereign. And as we give God glory together, our faith rises. Our joy rises. So that when we go back on mission into the world, we are not going out depleted. We are going out infused with the Holy Spirit joy that we've just been refilled with in community. What a gift. And as we look forward to a new ministry season, as we think about discipleship groups, how God has met us in very specific ways in His Word and and causing roots to go deep and having us depend on His Word and build relationship with each other and help and pray for each other and pray for the lost in those settings, God is bearing fruit from that. And the details we'll get into later on today about when we start up our community groups again, larger gatherings, families getting together, adults and kids getting together, married and single, old and young, lifelong believer and brand new Christian. We all get to come together over a meal and celebrate God's goodness together. These are simply opportunities for us to see our joy increase, to see God's faithfulness more clearly. We grieve our sin, but we don't stay there. Celebrate God's forgiveness. The end of verse 10, Ezra says, Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. What does that mean? We quote that. Maybe that's a very familiar verse to you. What does that really mean? The word strength there means fortress, it's a fortress. A stronghold, kind of like walls of a city. So picture Ezra saying that with a wink. As the people are standing there, he's standing in front of them on this, probably a wooden platform made for this occasion so that he could be elevated so that people in the back could see and hear. And directly behind Ezra, these brand new walls. So picture Ezra in what he's inferring to the people. These walls, built by God's grace, these walls may protect you against horses and chariots of enemies. They're going to help you sleep better at night because you know your children will be safe. These walls will take away the shame of of our land that, that people make fun of Jerusalem and take away our honor, but not anymore. And we're thankful to God for these walls. But, oh, people of Israel, don't forget where your true fortress is. Don't forget, because these walls may one day crumble. But the faithfulness of God that produces joy in us, His joy that God gives us is our fortress. 
His covenant-keeping love is our real protection and joy. Whenever we are not faithful, we can be reminded God is faithful. When things around us that we depend on crumble, we can remember He will never crumble. He remains faithful. His joy is your strength. And so, the people hear, and they respond, and they stop weeping, and they go out and celebrate. Not some sad supper, not some tear in my beer. They get together and rejoice. They rejoice because they understood, the Bible says, the words that were declared to them. The people understood they had been forgiven. The people understood God kept covenant with them. He is faithful. He has rescued them. He has brought them back together. He has reconciled his people to himself, and now he has reconciled his people to one another. And they rejoice. They celebrate. Church, we have been through quite the season the last year and a half. A lot of things have been shaken in ways that maybe we didn't think they ever could be. And let's, while we rejoice in that, let's not, let, let's not believe everything's over. We still have many challenges that will face us ahead. We don't know what those challenges are, but we know this, God does. Not only does he know as if he's some helpless spectator, God is ordaining every challenge that's headed our way. Because God is intending to grow our joy and our satisfaction, and our hope, and our faith in Him through what is yet to come. How do we know that? Because He's already done it. Stop and imagine all that you've been through as a family, what we've been through as a church, what we've been through as a country this last year and a half. What good things have come from that? We could sit down and talk for hours about the good things God has produced. Imagine the good things God has yet to produce in the challenges we've yet to face. Because God remains faithful. Now that might be difficult to hear this morning, especially if you've come in with a weary heart. Maybe you can't even begin to think about next year, much less tomorrow. But can I just encourage you? The weariness of your heart is a wonderful place to be when you take that weariness and you bring it to the Lord and you say, I don't have the strength and he smiles and says, that's okay, I do. When we come to the Lord and say, I don't know how I'm going to handle it next week, and the Lord reminds us, that's okay, I do. I've got you. And when we think about Jesus specifically, when he prayed for the church in John 17, Jesus prayed for this joy. He says, but now I'm coming to you, talking to the Father, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my Joy fulfilled in themselves. Not just your joy. Jesus' joy. The battle-tested joy. Now, in order to have battle-tested joy, we have to go through some battles, right? Jesus knew the hardships we would face. The suffering and the persecution. But instead of stealing our joy, he knew this was going to strengthen our joy because it's his joy that we have. And what was Jesus' joy? Hebrews 12. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, 
who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What was the joy set before Jesus? His joy was our rescue. His joy, when he saw the cross, he saw our redemption. He saw you and me being forgiven and being cleansed and being reconciled with the Father. And he saw his people being reconciled to one another. And that gives him joy, and then he takes his joy and gives it to us. Jesus endured the cross, endured the hardship and the suffering, knowing that what he would accomplish there would bring us joy in him. So church, be encouraged. Today, next week, the new ministry season, and years from now, Walk in the joy that is already yours in Christ. In your difficulty, in your struggle, remember it is not bigger than God. He remains faithful. And as we do that with one another, together we will find our dependence in Him, we will find faith in Him, and ultimately we will find our joy in Him. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, as we have been reminded this morning, perhaps of our, our own unfaithfulness and our heart's grief, we thank you, Lord, that we have been given grace. That as we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So I pray for anyone in here, Lord, who is carrying the burden of their sin and have not yet confessed it to you, that you would cause that to happen today, that they would trust in you, call out upon you, and you are quick to forgive. And Lord, for those of us who are following you and trust in you, that we're weary, we need our joy replenished, well, Lord, you're doing that right now. Not in the absence of difficulty, but even through it, because you are a faithful God. Grow the joy of the Lord in us, and may your joy be our strength. In Jesus' name.